We'll be reading verses 9 through 15. Uh, I am, this is one of those sermons that it's a singular, um, it's a singular sermon, but going to be preached on two different occasions. Um, that may sound weird, but it's, uh, th- this is a pericope, a preaching passage, and it should be preached as one unit, but I don't have time to preach both points uh, in this morning service. So you're going to get it this one unit on two different occasions, this and Lord willing, next Sunday. So just wanted to apprise you of that. So uh, we won't be covering much material in the latter portion of what I'm going to read, but I'm going to read the whole passage too. This is the word of the Lord. Listen reverently as I read, starting in verse 9 of Timothy, 1 Timothy 2. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you during that uh, time in our worship when it is most especially important that you um, be involved in uh, what transpires, for I am a sinner, um, and I am prone to error, as we all are as sinners, uh, because of our sinful uh, inclinations that still uh, are there, even though they are increasingly being subdued. But Lord, it's most important that your word not be um, besmirched by error from my lips. Would you please prevent that from happening? Would you please make sure that what I say is indeed a, a true reflection of what this passage means and what it does not mean to the degree that I uh, discuss that? Would you please... Um, Help us to be uh, receptive to what you are saying in this passage, uh, even though uh, these words are difficult for some to hear. Please honor yourself in this time and bless us, we would ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, eyes up here, everybody. Okay. Kids, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever played a game like the game I'm going to describe to you, with uh, maybe with your brothers and sisters or with some friends? Some of you have played this kind of a game. Perhaps some of you haven't, but you can imagine it, uh, even if you haven't played it. But maybe you've played it. A game in which um, different friends, you and uh, you and one or more of your friends or brothers and sisters, play a different role in the game. Different. So there are different roles in the game that you're playing. So, for example. 
If you played Cops and Robbers, maybe you've heard of that game that children oftentimes play. I used to play when I was a kid. Uh, I think I did anyway. Um, um, yeah, Cops and Robbers. So some somebody's got to be a cop, or maybe a couple people need to be cops, and, and then somebody needs to be a robber, or a couple of robbers. And the, the cops are chasing after the robbers. You, maybe you played that game. Maybe your parents played that game one time. Hopefully not recently. Anyway, um, cowboys and Indians is another one. That's not a very politically correct uh, term uh, uh, anymore, um, that uh, that uh, contrast between cowboys and Indians, because it sounds like good guys, bad guys. But anyway, cowboys and Indians might be another game that some children might still be playing. Or kings and queens. But in each of those games, different people take different roles. There are two different roles in each one of those things, like games I just described. And somebody takes one role and somebody takes another role. Well, just like in the games that I've just described to you that you might have played, different children take different roles. In the Bible, it's clear that God has assigned different roles for different people in the church to have. And I'm speaking, I'm thinking specifically here about men and women, or, and this also includes boys and girls, but males and females. God has, uh, this passage that we are looking at, uh, this morning, uh, in it, uh, the Lord Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, speaks of differing roles for men and women, specifically in the church. Now, Elsewhere, he speaks of different roles for men and women in the family, in the house. Um, but he speaks here particularly about the church, the, uh, the community of believers who are in covenant with the Lord Jesus. And he says there are differing roles for men and women in the church. And we're going to look this morning, and also next Sunday, by the way, children, at this concept of differing roles that God has assigned, God the Son, as the king of the church, the head of the church, to different uh, to men and to women, to boys and to girls. Uh, this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is going to be one of the most politically incorrect sermons that I've ever preached from this pulpit. You probably already guessed that when I read the text. Like, wow, this is going to be fun. Well, it is going to be fun. Well, maybe that's not the right word, but it's it's going to be good. Put it that way. Uh, but it's going to be very politically incorrect, what I'm going to say this morning. But there's a reason why it's going to be very politically incorrect, and that is because this text is very politically incorrect. God wrote this text. God the Son, who is the Word incarnate. He wrote the Word inscripturated, by his spirit, through the apostles and the prophets of old. But he is the one who is speaking here. And God the Son has nothing but contempt for the world's preferences, for the world's agenda, for the world's uh, perspective on this or any other matter for that, for that matter. And this text makes that point uh, very obviously. So you need to brace yourselves for what we're going to hear, some of you in particular, this morning. Two points, one that you're going to get this morning, the other one that you're going to get next week, Lord willing, but they are as follows from this text that summarizes its, uh, its uh, content. First, we're going to look at what Christ requires of Christian women within the church setting. 
Next Sunday, we're going to look at what Christ requires of Christian men within the church setting. This is the one that's going to be more controversial that I'm entering into now, this morning, regarding Christian women. What Christ requires of Christian women within the church setting. By church setting, uh, what I mean is the setting in which God's covenant people, those who are in covenant with him, uh, and there are covenant keepers and covenant breakers in the church, the breakers being those who aren't actually trusting in Christ solely for their salvation, covenant keepers those who are and manifested by the way they act increasingly. But the church setting here is the setting in which God's covenant people have gathered together for the purpose of engaging in structured religious activity. In particular, corporate worship or Bible exposition. Or, which would include what transpires in Sunday school, for example, or in uh, church-sponsored Bible study uh, activity that's for the whole church. Now, I left corporate prayer out of here. The uh, Elsewhere, including in verse 8, which I really should have read to you, and I'll read it here in a minute, um, but points to the fact that men are required to lead in corporate prayer, but women may participate in corporate prayer as evidenced by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to go there now, but it talks about women praying uh, uh, in the church and how they're to do that. Uh, in a church, in a setting where prayer is taking place, uh, but uh, but but this is this text is dealing principally with the activities that involve teaching or preaching, where where uh, where the Bible is being expounded, uh, where where religious instruction is taking place uh, amongst the, the the congregation of God's people, a local congregation. Oh, it doesn't have to be local; it could be regional or, or national, even as well. But uh, that's what I mean by uh, women within the church setting um, and what he requires them. So Paul starts out in verse 9. He says, likewise, I, and then you may notice uh, some of your Bibles, mine does this, and I think other Bibles probably do as well. Uh, I, Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. But the word want is in italics in my Bible. Uh, it may be in yours as well. What that means is, it's not actually in the Greek there. The word, the Greek word is not actually in that particular point. However, it's inserted by the translators because it's clearly implied. Now, why is it implied? Well, because the word was used in the previous verse. Go back to verse 8. Paul says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. And he's not referring to hands that are somehow holy, but it's a reference reference to the holiness of the heart of the individual that expresses itself in what the hands do. Uh, but it's, So it's speaking about a holy heart more than it is about holy hands, but it uh, uses hands to point to the heart. Therefore, I want men in every place uh, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And then he says, likewise... I, and then here's where the implied want is. I want, uh, which is clearly implied from what uh, he said in the previous verse in verse 8. He just doesn't, in the Greek, he doesn't, Paul doesn't bother to repeat it because it's implied. Just like when you say uh, to, the, uh, to somebody, uh, go get my glasses, you mean 
you go get my glasses, but you didn't say you. But that's what's implied when you tell somebody, go, go get my glasses, one of your children or somebody else. Anyway, you get the point. So he wants, Paul says in verse, I want women to do this. Now, to our ears, modern ears, the words I want may sound as if Paul is merely expressing a private, personal preference for the behavior he's about to describe. About to describe here. That's not the case. It's, this is not a, I'm not, I'm speaking to you as a private citizen now, I'm just, this is kind of my preference, and I'm going to tell you what my preference is. That's not what Paul is doing here at all. No, in this letter, Paul is writing in his capacity as a representative of the Lord Jesus, as an apostle of Christ. The, the apostles were unique individuals. There are no apostles today, regardless of what other uh, denominations might say. There were only 13 apostles. Paul was one of them. And those apostles were unique in their ministry. They, they were extensions of Jesus' voice when they were speaking authoritatively, which is what's going on here in 1 Timothy and else anywhere where the scriptures are read, unless Paul says, in one place he does this, uh, I not the Lord. There he's actually, uh, he, well actually no, he's st- it's still, uh, that's wrong, it's still there, uh, divinely authoritative, but he's saying, I'm saying this, the Lord Jesus didn't say this when he was on earth, but I'm saying it now. Anyway, enough of that. Um, back to the text. So, He's writing in his capacity as an apostle. What that means is, when Paul says, I want, he means, I as an apostle of Christ want this. And I want there actually amounts to an apostolic directive, an order, a command, which is merely couched in the gentler language of personal desire. I want. It's to make the, it's a little sugar to make the pill go down uh, a little easier, if you will, the medicine go down. Uh, but it's not, no less directive or authoritative or uh, imperative when he says, I want. Uh, and since Paul is a mouthpiece of the enthroned Christ, uh, and also uh, through his pen, uh, by virtue of his apostolic office, Jesus is himself, through Paul, commanding the same thing that Paul is commanding as an apostle to women and, in a moment, men. Uh, in the church. So what is he commanding? What is the king of the church commanding? Well, he says there in verse 9, again, uh, uh, women, I want you to adorn, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works. Um, the, The setting here, the setting, the context, is corporate worship. Paul has been, uh, actually since the beginning of this chapter, been speaking about what is to be done in a corporate setting of the church. There are to be public uh, entreaties and petitions and prayers and thanksgivings made on behalf of all men corporately. He's speaking about what's to happen in a service like this. Um, and he's been talking about that since the beginning of the chapter. He Again, in verse 8, he's talking about corporate praying and how it's to be led. It's to be led by men whose hearts are holy, as reflected in the way they act. The hands are the means by which we do things, uh, many of the things that we do, and they're expressive of how we're acting. And so he wants godly men leading in prayer in worship. A lot of churches haven't gotten that point 
in our society. Uh, but um, I, that, that verse uh, makes that point, I think, eloquently. At any rate, the point of the context is corporate worship here. And so he's telling uh, people, women, uh, who are in a corporate worship setting, in a church setting, uh, where, where churchy things are taking place, um, religious activity, uh, that's a better way to put it. Um, and he's saying, I want you to adorn yourselves this way. Christ is saying that to uh, you ladies. Now, we obviously live in a day and an age and a place in which few people feel the need in our society to take anything into consideration other than their own personal wants and desires when they make the decision about what they're going to leave the house in, in terms of what they wear. Very few people uh, see the need to take anything else into consideration, like, what do I want to wear today? I want that. Indeed, I suspect that most of the people in our country today would be downright hostile if you suggested to them that anything other than their own personal tastes and wants should inform or inform the way they dress. Like, what are you talking about? I get to wear what I want to wear. That's it. End of sentence. Well, the fact is, even though most people would be downright hostile, uh, I think almost certainly uh, to such a suggestion, the fact is that God says no. No, that's not how you make decisions primarily about how you dress, especially in a church setting. Although this has implications beyond just the church setting, but he's dealing uh, first and foremost with the church setting now. He's like, no, that's not the case. Jesus, God, requires women, and oh, by the way, yes, men too, by implication, to dress, to clothe themselves in a manner that reflects selfless not selfish, but selfless concerned for the spiritual and moral well-being of others who may see us. He requires that. Now he's talking particularly about women, but by implication this applies to men too. He requires, Jesus does, for women and men to dress in a manner that doesn't encourage those... um, and speaking here about now about spiritual and moral well-being, that doesn't encourage those whom they may encounter during the course of their day as they're out and about, especially those of the opposite sex, that doesn't encourage such individuals to lust or think inappropriate thoughts about us when we go out in their hearts, to think those things in their hearts. The way, for example, skimpy tank tops... Uh, might on guys try who are trying to show off their muscles at the gym. I've seen that. Where there's not much fabric there. It's like, dude, that's just bit, that's just wrong. Maybe you've seen that too at times. Guys can do this. Or the way short shorts or skimpy blouses might have a similar effect on ga- uh, by on gals who are trying to show off their curves. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all have seen it at Walmart. Or wherever you go, out and about. To dress in these ways, whether intentionally or merely on account of carelessness or indifference, 
to dress in such ways as this that I've just described is a sin. Pure and simple. It is a sin. And that's one, and others are coming, but that is one of the reasons why King Jesus, through his apostle here, requires Christian women, particularly in the church setting, but not only in the church setting, Christian women and girls, to dress modestly and discreetly when they're in church, and yes, by implication, when they're out and about elsewhere than at the church. So that's one reason uh, to uh, aid others in their moral well-being by preventing others from falling into sin by looking at us. That's one of the reasons uh, that uh, this w- verse is given. Especially don't want to do that to another Christian brother or sister that might look at us when we come into the Bible study or into the, into the uh, uh, fellowship hall or the, or the uh, auditorium for worship or what have you. But there are other reasons as well, and I'm going to name two others. This verse also, I think, um, by implication, through it, Jesus is requiring Christian women, and yes, by implication, Christian men as well, to dress in a manner that doesn't cause, how should we say, unpleasantness for others who may be looking at us. I'm th- uh, that doesn't gross people out, to be frank about it. I'm thinking here about tight-fitting clothes on those for whom such clothes are not flattering. I'm thinking about baggy jeans on boys that shows too much in the back. I'm thinking even of t-shirts containing sayings which for some would cause, would, would unnecessarily offend them. Political slogans. You can probably think of some that we see pretty regularly these days. It's not, it's not befitting Christians. It's not appropriate. It's selfish. It's inconsiderate to gross other people out or offend other people unnecessarily. Sometimes it's necessary to offend others, but this is not one of those times by, by making uh, wardrobe decisions. To choose to wear such unbecoming clothing is both selfish and inconsiderate and is the opposite of the way in which Christians are supposed to act and behave. Paul makes this clear in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And this includes a multitude of areas, but it certainly includes the way you dress and the way I dress. All of us. So that's the second reason. First is you don't want to cause somebody to lust. That's the reason why, presumably, a reason why the Lord made this command through Paul, because we don't want to offend or gross out other people around us because it's selfish to do that to make them endure uh, visually something that we're wearing. Uh, and the third reason, uh, I suspect, why this command is given, is uh, and why Christian females, and again males also, are supposed to dress modestly and not to draw inappropriate attention to themselves, because that's what immodest dress does. It draws inappropriate attention to yourself. 
The reason, uh, another third reason why this command is undoubtedly given is because, <coughs> excuse me, the way that we look on the outside, the way that we present ourselves, our deportment, is supposed to reflect who we are on the inside as much as possible. And Jesus has commanded you as a Christian and me as a Christian to be meek, to be unassuming, to be humble in our hearts in imitation of the Lord Jesus himself. And again, in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus says a few verses later in verse 5, have this attitude that he just described when he said, be with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. He says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so we are to do the same. We are to be humble people. It's what Christians should look like, inside and, oh yes, outside. And to clothe ourselves outwardly in ways that suggest we are self-absorbed and arrogant inwardly and selfish inwardly, to dress in such ways is to lie to other people about how a Christian is supposed to be, and it brings shame to the one whose name we bear, the Lord Jesus, when we act that way. George Knight, in his commentary, said this about um, this verse, verse 9, that we're looking at. He said, The reason for Paul's prohibition of women dressing in inappropriate fashion, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. He says the reason for Paul's prohibition of elaborate hairstyles, ornate jewelry, and extremely expensive clothing becomes clear when one reads in the contemporary literature, the literature of the day, of the inordinate time, expense, and effort that elaborately braided hair and jewels demanded from women, not just as ostentatious display, it was not just as ostentatious display, but also it was as a mode of dress for courtesans and harlots. He's saying, don't dress like a prostitute. Ladies, that's that's nice. I mean, the text is saying that Knight's interpreting the text based on what he knows about the uh, uh, literature of the day that described this kind of uh, uh, this kind of dress and this kind of effort made to dress in a certain way, and how it was courtesans, uh, uh, royal suckups, uh, and and uh, harlots that uh, dressed that way in the day. So then, it's the excess. It's the excess and the sensuality, the uh, the drawing uh, uh, inappropriate attention to the way you look. It's that that such finery suggested in Paul's day. It's that 
what's being, what is being forbidden here. Not braids, gold, jewelry, pearls, or even costly garments per se. It's not those things per se that are being forbidden here. It's what in the day those things were associated with what they said when people, women particularly, wore stuff like that. It's what it said to people as they looked at them. Ooh, there goes one of those ladies. Women, excuse me. Not ladies. By the way, that, uh, that it's the emphasis is on the excess rather than forbidding uh, these various uh, adornments. Uh, that this is in fact the case, that that's what Paul means here, what Jesus means here through him, is evident from the fact that the scriptures elsewhere speak of such things, of pearls, of gold, of, uh, of, um, of um, adornment, uh, uh, especially by women. It speaks elsewhere of such things in positive terms. I'm not going to take time right now to list this, but I'll give you one example, and there, there are numerous examples of each, or more than one example of each. But gold, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, it is spoken of in a, uh, in a very positive manner and in, the, in terms of uh, it's, uh, it's being uh, held by Christians and, and used by Christians for various things. Pearls in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses uh, 45 and 46. And a bride adorned, um, meaning adorned in finery. Uh, think of Song of Solomon. She is an adorned bride and described as ornately dressed and decked out as a bride. And, and that is uh, a beautiful picture of Christian love between a husband and a wife. So it's not that all that stuff is taboo. It's, it's the, the time, the effort, the expense, and the motives for using such things that's the issue here for Paul and for, for Christ. Rather than Jesus, uh, r- rather than, um, um, uh, what Jesus wants, uh, what he requires, I should say, of Christian women is rather than uh, spending lots and lots of time primping in front of the mirror and uh, and uh, spending lots of your money on uh, uh, all these uh, things that we've just been talking about uh, and focusing on that, rather than that, what the Lord says through Paul is he wants women to focus on, to give their attention primarily to adorning themselves with good works. He says that in verse 10. Uh, but rather, by means of good works, that's, in other words, you are to adorn yourself uh, as women, as befits women making a claim, and that's what a professing Christian is doing, making a claim to be a new creature in Christ, which brings with it godliness, uh, more Christ-like behavior increasingly. Uh, and if you claim to be a Christian, this applies to you, in other words. Actually, it applies to everybody, but he's speaking to the church now, covenant community. And he says good works are what should be... Uh, uh, what's what is um, what you are wishing to adorn yourselves with, um, and by good works, he's not merely uh, or not only speaking of the singular obedient deed of wearing modest attire. Yes, he's referring to that. But notice, he says good works. It's plural there, not a good work. Meaning, uh, it could be, if it were a good work, you could interpret it as he's referring to just the modest dress. Decision to dress modestly. But he's saying, but rather by means of good works, plural. 
So he's speaking here of doing good deeds um, um, that, that's a wide spectrum here of good deeds that he has in mind, which result from the fact that Jesus' spirit has taken, resida, re, taken up residence within us. He, we have trusted in him, if we're Christians, as our Savior and as our Lord, as our prophet, priest, and king. And um, that, um, that should cause us to want to obey and to strive to obey, and to expend the majority of our uh, energy and our time and our thoughts on obeying, doing good deeds as defined by God in the scriptures, whatever God commands us to do. Not to get us into heaven, but because we're going to heaven. And the fact, um, so, I've already, I've already talked about that, um, so, now, in light of what all I've said, what, what I'm not saying here by saying you ladies and, oh, you men too, need to not spend so much time, uh, thinking about how you dress outwardly, uh, but rather, uh, how you are inwardly and the way you behave. That is not to say, what I just said there, is not to say that we should be utterly unconcerned about our outward appearance. It's not, not, we're not saying that. The, I'll put it this way, the disheveled look um, could actually do harm to your Christian witness, and you're not supposed to do harm to your Christian witness. To look like you just rolled out of bed when you walk into the grocery store or into the office. It's not a good look, and it doesn't speak well of the Savior that you serve. Rather, what what I'm saying is, is that the great majority, uh, and what the text is saying is that the great majority of your energy and your time and your resources should be devoted to doing good. Paul himself says so when he speaks to Timothy, Titus rather, in verse, starting in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2 to 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and there he means all sorts of men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us and notice that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Ladies and you gentlemen, and you boys and you girls are to be zealous for good works. Even though he's, in this text that we're looking at, uh, addressing uh, women at this point in time. But there are other things that uh, Jesus is requiring in this text of you ladies within the church setting. Not only are you to dress modestly and discreetly, Not only are you to adorn yourselves with good works, but you ladies are also commended through, uh, commanded, I should say, through Paul's words here, to quietly receive instruction in the church. Verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. This is very incorrect, politically speaking. This verse and what I'm about to say about it. 
the situation, the circumstance, the uh, venue, that's not the right word, but the situation, the setting in which Paul, that Paul has in mind here in this verse and the, follow, uh, and the following verse, also verse 12, which I'll read in just a moment. The setting that he has in mind here, as I've already said, is a mixed gender church setting in which formal religious instruction is taking place. That's what he has in mind here. Although, uh, well, yeah, I won't say that. That's what he has in mind here. And what Paul and Jesus through him is requiring of women in this, in such a setting, in this verse, is that when women and girls are in a church setting where such teaching or preaching is taking place, they are to listen to this instruction in silence. Quietly, in other words. And more than this, more than just listening rather than speaking, um, or leading in any kind of speaking, certainly, but more than being silent, our Lord Jesus through Paul requires women to receive such teaching that they are hearing willingly and without any resistance or resentment at the fact that they can't be doing the teaching themselves. With entire submissiveness. Gloria Steinem would freak out if she were here now. People today would say this is just ludicrous. This is misogynistic. Paul's a misogynist. They would say the Lord if they believe that which they don't, if they say such things, but if they were, you know, if they, if somebody said, Jesus inspired this, God inspired this, well, they would point the finger at God and call him those names. Highly politically incorrect, as politically incorrect as it gets, just about. But he's saying, ladies, this is what I want from you in a church setting. Not because, he's not saying this because you are less intelligent, less capable, less valuable to him than men are. That is so not the case. But that's what everybody jumps to, who wants to find a reason to dismiss this. Well, you know, and on goes the comments. No, the reason is that women are told to act in this manner in a church setting where uh, instruction is taking place in a formal church setting is because Jesus has assigned men and women different roles in the church, and this also, again, applies to the family as well. We're not, we're not talking about the family right now, but this, uh, it does apply. He's assigned different roles to men and women. And the Lord Jesus forbids not only women to be uh, uh, instructionally speaking in a church setting, uh, a mixed church setting I'm talking about, where there are men and women and boys and girls present, men and women, uh, both genders. But he is also forbidding in this text, verse 12, women to teach men. Not just to, they just not, not only can't speak uh, in the church setting where um, where it's formal formal uh, worship or uh, instruction is taking place but also 
women are not allowed by our Lord to teach men in such a setting. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Ouch. Let's talk about the teaching before we get to the authority. I'll end with the authority, but he forbids this. Women you cannot teach men. Uh, religious instruction is what we're talking about here in a church setting. They're not allowed to do it. Now, Paul is speaking again authoritatively as an apostle of Christ, penning inspired scripture. He is speaking here when, uh, the, in that capacity when he says, I do not allow or permit, as some uh, versions put it, or suffer, as the King James uh, puts it. That's an archaic word. I don't allow it. As an apostle of Christ, speaking on his behalf, it's not to be done. Now, this is not, this statement here in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach men. This, this is not a blanket prohibition against all teaching by women, even religious teaching by women. It's not a prohibition of all religious teaching by women. The prohibition is limited to religious subject matter in a church setting. I keep underlining that, but that's very, very important. It has to do with the church setting and religious instruction, theological training from uh, exposition of Scripture directed at men. That's what's the point here. Paul and Jesus are not forbidding you ladies from providing religious instruction in certain situations, to other women. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 makes that point. To juvenile boys, children and uh, male children and boys. Proverbs 1.8 is one of uh, several places that could make that point. That's not for, for, forbidden for you ladies, you moms especially, to teach your teenage sons religious content. Nor is it forbidding, uh, nor is it forbidding women from teaching men, men, even men, in private conversations. And I make that statement because it's evident from the fact that both Aquila and Priscilla provided Apollos with a more accurate understanding of the implications of the completion of Jesus' atoning work. In Acts chapter 18, verses 25 and 26, Priscilla taught Apollos. It was privately. That was okay. No problem. There's other scriptures that underline and underscore and uh, confirm this point that Paul is making here, that women are uh, in the church uh, are forbidden to teach men in such a setting. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse uh, excuse me chapter 14 verses 34 and 35 Paul makes the same point that he's making here in 1 Timothy. I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 14. He's talking again here about public worship. And he says in verse uh, 34 and I'm and I'm uh, modifying this translation just a little bit here um, rather than let the women uh uh, it's, uh, it can be also translated and probably should be translated, let your women, meaning the women in your midst, uh, let your women keep silent 
in the churches. For they are not, here it is, permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. In other words, not at the church, not at the worship service. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Not for you to chat afterwards in the church building. Not even for Lisa or Ginger to say to me, is that the right hymn? Did you mean that hymn? You know, because she's confused and she speaks to me for a moment. That's not, that's not what it's talking about. Yes, it's in the worship setting, but it's, it's, it's not the leading, it's not the in, intentional, deliberate uh, uh, thing up front uh, that's being uh, spoken of here. So both of these verses, it's clear, the clear implication of both 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that I just read and 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 12, 11 and 12, the clear implication of both of them is that women are not allowed to serve as church elders or ministers. Same thing. Because one of the principal duties of the office of the eldership is to teach all the people in the church, including the men. So women can't teach men in a church setting, so women can't be elders. That's a clear implication of both of these passages. And since deacons also have teaching responsibilities at times, I would suggest that this passage, although there are others that can be brought to bear, this passage also, I think, probably rules out the possibility of women serving as deacons as well. But there are other passages that definitely do. But this one also could be uh, lend itself to make that point. And then finally, Christ also in this passage is forbidding Christian women to exercise authority over men in a church setting. He says that in verse 12. By the phrase, exercise authority over a man, Paul means exercise a leadership role, a spiritual leadership role over men, again, within the covenant community. That's what he is referring to when he says he's exercising authority over a man. This is a role, a leader, the leadership role that I'm talking about. This is a role that the great shepherd has reserved for men. Only men are allowed by him to exercise spiritual leadership, to rule spiritually in the midst of God's people. Only men. This requirement also rules out the possibility that women can serve as elders in the church. Like I said, uh, not only because they can't teach, but also because the other major duty of the elder, in addition to the pastoral and shepherding responsibility, is the ruling function of elders. We are to rule over the household of God on behalf of Christ as his under shepherds. And women are forbidden from doing this in this text. Because men are in the congregation. That women may not teach men or exercise authority over men in the church is underscored by the words at the end of verse 12, but women are to remain quiet. There's just no getting around what Jesus is saying in this text, if you're honest about the text. 
The world thinks this prohibition, again, against female leadership in the church is abhorrent, misogynistic. And frankly, so do many professing Christians within the greater church think it's so. But King Jesus isn't remotely concerned about making sure that his commands to his people are approved of by men or women. He's concerned. He has two great concerns, the head of the church does. He's concerned for the spiritual well-being of his elect, of believing covenant folks. And he's concerned for his and the Father's and the Spirit's glory. That's it. And his decision to reserve both the exercise of church authority and the duty to provide religious instruction in the church setting to men alone, that decision addresses both of those and meets both of those concerns and addresses them. God's people are blessed with that arrangement, and God's glory is magnified with that arrangement. Now, if you're a believer here and listening to my words and you're struggling to accept what is being said by the text and by me, A, I'm just the messenger. But B, you need to do something with that struggle, and that is you need to give it over to God. And you need to pray that the Lord would give you grace, faith, to trust that he knows what he's doing. And that he doesn't make mistakes, including in the way he's arranged for his church to be run. You need to ask the Lord, help me, Lord, to to find peace with this passage and to accept that this is the right way. This is the way it needs to be, in spite of the fact that part of me, because of the culture in which I live, just can't stand that that this is the case. God can give you the ability to warm up to this idea, if I can put it that way. If you're listening to me, here in this room or remotely, and you've never um, believed the Bible, or at least uh, you pick and choose what you believe from the Bible, and uh, you have never really bowed the knee in faith to King Jesus, that is to say, trusted Jesus alone to make you uh, uh, right with God, to forgive you of your sins, uh, uh, get you into heaven, and to be the king of your life, the leader of your life, the master of your life. If you've never trusted Jesus alone for those things, you're an unbeliever. You're not a Christian. And you are in trouble right now. Grave danger. You need to deal with this text in a different way than the believers that I've just spoken to do, who are struggling. The requirement of church leaders that church leaders must be men, points to and highlights the fact that the ultimate leader of the church, the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate minister, the ultimate elder of the church is a man. The man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. 
And he is your only hope of not spending eternity in hell. Your only hope. You may not like that, but it's the case. He's the only one who can save you from the punishment that your sins, and yes, my sins, deserve, which is eternal damnation. He's the only one that can save you from that destiny. And he, can, and he has done that. He is the Savior of sinners who look to him in faith precisely because he is a human. He is a man. I'm not here talking about his maleness so much, but his, his humanity. He is a human being. And he's, yes, he's a male human being. Like you are. And like I am. And because he's like you and me in our humanness, he can act and did act in the place of sinners who would look to him in faith for their forgiveness and their reconciliation with God. And he had to be a man or he couldn't reconcile you to God or provide the opportunity for you to be reconciled to God. And he also had to be and is not just a man, but the God-man, God the Son, the God-man. And precisely because he is both a human and because he is God, he is able to save you. Why is that? Why do we need for our Savior, uh, our Mediator, uh, our Redeemer to be God as well as man? Because God alone can pay off the infinite debt to divine justice that you owe as a sinner. You have offended God infinitely by not just one sin, by countless sins that you've committed over the course of your life. And I richly deserve to go to hell, but so do you. And you'll go there unless you have Jesus and him alone. Trusting in him alone, who is a him, to save you. That's what you need to do. You need to trust. May God give you the grace, because only then can you trust when God gives you the grace to trust him. May God give that to you. Next week, we'll be looking, Lord willing, at the second point of the sermon, What Christ Requires of Christian Men Within the Church Setting. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, it's tough for some of us to hear this. Produces mixed emotions, unpleasant emotions for some. Would you please, Lord, use this text for your glory and its preaching for your glory to make your people more conformed to the image of you, Lord Jesus, morally speaking. That you would cause us to be more, to rejoice more in this teaching. To not kick against the goats in our hearts, even a little bit, at what we're reading and hearing from this text. Would you please make us want your will whatever it is, just because it's your will. And if there's anybody who is listening to me and these words, who isn't yours, Lord Jesus, would you please subdue him or subdue her to yourself, giving them the gift of faith to trust you alone. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Supper... um, like the other 
holy ordinance that's commended to the New Testament church and scripture, baptism. Uh, both sacraments were instituted by the Lord Jesus, and record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in several places, one of which is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul speaking, For I received, and he did this as the apostle of Christ, uh, when Jesus appeared to him and called him to the apostolate, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning are dead. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. I'll stop there. The Lord Jesus instituted this holy ordinance um, to be observed in remembrance of him, particularly him and his work, uh, his atoning work, which which is in some sense culminates, uh, because it's his work, in uh, uh, his uh, giving up of his life on the cross, and it was voluntarily given up, not taken from him by the Romans or the Jews or anybody else. Um, but it was culminates in that work, but it, it's, that's the culmination. It also includes his uh, obedient life, his entire life of obedience under his own law lived in our place, uh, and also his uh, death on, uh, for us in obedience, and it also includes uh, his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. Uh, which the Father effected uh, on his behalf. But the point is, that whole uh, uh, complex of actions that he took as our substitute is what is to be in view as we partake, and, and him uh, as we partake of this sacrament. It is, the scriptures teach, a sign, and it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. It's not a sign of what has necessarily of something that's already taken place within us. Some of our Christian friends and other uh, branches of the church disagree with us on this, uh, but it's a sign of the covenant is what it is. It's a sign of the covenant. Um, and as a sign, it uh, symbolizes and points us to something, and that is the, the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. Uh, that again culminated in what his work that he did uh, to save us. But it's more than merely a sign pointing to something. Uh, 
his uh, historical uh, actions on our behalf. But it's also, the scripture says, a seal. <coughs> or the scripture indicates. It's a seal as well. What does that mean? God is saying something. Actually, God the Son, because he's the host of this communion table. He is saying something to you as you partake of the communion. And what he's saying uh, to you is the promises that I have given you in my word with respect to your spiritual well-being um, are yes. I'm reconfirming those promises to you as you partake, that I'm good for those promises. Um, and so we can trust our eternal well-being to him without fear because he's not going to renege on what he said on any of those promises with respect to our salvation and our spiritual well-being. Because it is a sign pointing us to Christ and our hearts to Christ, and also it is a seal, Christ speaking through this to us to comfort and so on, it is and, and instruct. It is also a means of grace. That is to say, it's a means that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ uses to make us more like Jesus, morally. To help us to digest and believe sermons like I just preached without rebellion in our hearts, for example. It is a means that Christ can and wants to use to make you, to draw you closer to him. This meal uh, is not for everyone. It is only for those who know themselves to be believers in Christ. That's it. If you're not sure, please don't partake. Those judgment passages that I read, uh, verses that I read toward the end there of that reading will apply to you. Judgment will come if you, in some manner, if you take this meal and it's not for you. Don't take it. Um, use this time as an opportunity to ask God to give you a, a heart that wants Jesus because you don't currently have Jesus and you need him. Um, so if you're not a Christian, do not partake. Um, you need to be a member of uh, this or some other evangelical church, uh, a baptized member, I should say. Baptism points to, uh, and we as elders are required to do, uh, to, to not carelessly serve to anybody who just happens to walk into the church. We need to do our best to discern who's actually a Christian when we pass out the elements. And by you being a baptized member of, a, of an evangelical church, if not this one, some other, that's a way that we can have some assurance that your, your profession to trust in Christ is credible, is believable, and that it's okay for you to receive the element or for us to give you the elements um, and partake. So you need to uh, be such. But uh, as, I've al- as I always say, this table is for sinners, not for perfect people, people who have messed up. You've all messed up this past week. I've messed up this past week. We all have. Um, this is for people who are struggling to be more holy but are struggling in that effort. I've had some good days and some really bad days, perhaps, this past week, maybe. Um, If you're wrestling with sin, don't stay away from the table. Uh, Partake, as long as you're wrestling and you hate your sin and you want to put it off. You You need this. You need to partake. All right, let's pray. Ask the Lord's blessing on our participation. Lord, we do, Lord Jesus, ask that you would... 
take this, these elements that we are, have before us here, and that you, as you serve us, uh, as you invite us to partake of these elements, we pray that you would set them aside from the common everyday use that we would otherwise use them for under the holy purposes for which we are going to be using them uh, in this sacrament. Would you cause us, by faith, to feed upon you, your body and blood, in our hearts uh, afresh and take great comfort and joy as we do so in what we have from you during this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave his gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, now give this uh, bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served, and then we'll eat together. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, He also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to the disciples, saying, This covenant, this cup, rather, is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Please wait until we're all served, and then we'll partake together. Remember, there's uh, grape juice in the middle. If you can't in good conscience, uh, partake of the wine. The wine is around the perimeter.
the blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your body was broken and that your blood was shed for us that your life was given for us by you voluntarily that we might live. Thank you for uh, providing us with supports like the sacraments to remind us in tangible ways of what you did for us and of how blessed we are. We ask that you would cause us to go out from this place in joyful determination to serve you to the best of our abilities in the coming days and weeks ahead. We need, we must have your help in doing this, or we we can't even begin to do it. Please help us, Lord, to resist temptation, to pursue good works and good deeds, to be zealous for them, not for uh, for any reason other than because it pleases you, and it's a way of thanking you for what you've so graciously done to us and for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our service with hymn number 350 in the Psalter hymnal, 350. Let's sing this closing hymn together. I fain would take my stand The shadow of a mighty rock Within a weary land A home within the wilderness A rest upon the way From the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears to wonders I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know, nor gain, nor loss. My sinful self 
my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.